Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Check one. Is that good? Okay. They didn't cover that in seminary class. Sorry. I hear the bomb going off in the back of the room. Like, I didn't know if I need to evacuate everybody. What's going on? Goodness. I tell you, anytime that you want to do the things that the Lord has called you to do, Satan will absolutely try to hinder. And tech issues is one of the biggest issues that we deal with. And so thank you guys for your grace and your patience. And also to say, um, this morning when you came in and we had the doors closed, that's give time for our worship team to run through uh, and have kind of a little bit of a practice. And if the guy that's preaching first service runs over, that's sometimes why those doors have to stay closed is to give them enough time. So that's on me. And I just thank you for your grace and your patience to hang out and fellowship while we are giving our worship team some time to run through their songs and, and to try to, again, bring excellence for you in worship. So, uh, but yeah, when, when we're packed out there, that's nine times out of nine on me. And so just thank you for that. So when I was a student pastor, I used to tell my students, anytime I wear a crazy fun shirt, that usually means that the sermon's going to hit. And so anything short of a grass skirt and a coconut bra, you know, I'm just going to apologize <laughs> to you right now. But what we can't forget is, you know, a lot of people uh, texted a message or said something about last week, like, hey, that, that really hit. That was really good. Thank you for that. As I now have to try to digest all of that through the week, um, we can't forget of everything that we just said last week. So if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back. But this is a letter that Jude is writing to the church, and we are still a part of the church. We are the church. And so he's writing this letter even to us. And like any good letter, you can't forget about the first or second paragraphs, right? Like, so the few times in my middle school days that some girl was blind enough to send me a love letter, right? And they'd fold it up, maybe hit it with a little perfume, you know? And they'd hand it to me at school because we didn't have like text messaging and stuff like that, right? Like, you, like if you liked somebody, you had to do it the old-fashioned way. You had to walk up to them. Or you had your friend deliver the note, right? Pony Express, there we go. And so, you know, when you would read that, you wouldn't just read the first paragraph and be like, oh, that's great, I'll get to it later. No, you read that thing like nine times. And you dissected every little word, be like, what did she mean by that? What did she mean by this? And, and then you'd have to write in response and send your letter back through the Pony Express back to her. And that's how we communicated in middle school. It's uh, shocking that, you know, the population of the world did not just drop <laughs> because we can't talk to one another. But the same thing when Jude is writing, we can't forget about everything that he said. He is writing a letter. He's building up on everything. So we're just jumping mid-letter, right? Now, we could take more time on a Sunday morning, but usually they try to cap me, you know, at a good 45 minutes. And so, and that's why we break it up. But we never want to lose the context as we are studying through a letter. So everything that we said last week, important. Everything that we're going to say next week, important to the letter of Jude and from Jude. And we have to read it all together. But we're jumping in verse 8. <clears throat> He says, yet in like manner, these people, so he's still talking about these certain people that have crept into the church unnoticed. They don't have a good testimony about themselves. He says, so in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. And as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these 
that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed, boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. I'm so glad I came to church this morning. When you walk in, you see the sermon title is More Rebellion. <laughs> yeah, that's when you know you buckle up. And so a couple things. We're going to do a small little geek out just to start, just because uh, there's a couple things in this passage specifically I want to speak into. And so if you're hearing that story of Michael and the devil contending for the body of Moses, and be like, where is that in the Old Testament? Or if you're reading about this Enoch, seventh from Adam, and what he spoke, like, I don't know what the Old Testament cross-reference is of that. It's because you're not going to find it in the Old Testament. You know, uh, the History Channel just does so many wonderful things, and they'll have these shows of the lost books of the Bible, and they try to put that we only include the ones that we like, and we, we try to eliminate the other ones that are, you know, that we're, we're holding back the real truth for you. And so I always, every once in a while, somebody will watch one of those and be like, Pastor, did you know that there's actually more books in, for the Bible? And it's like, this is not new news for me, right? And so uh, let's talk about that. I took a class on ancient manuscripts that were uh, focused around the context of Scripture. And so there's, there's a lot of these, right? And so one grouping of some of these books is called the Apocrypha, right? And, and we're going to split hairs here. So these two books that Jude references, they're not from the Apocrypha, but let's talk about it. The Apocrypha was mainly written in between the intertestamental period of time. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years, and gives us a lot of good understanding to uh, how Judaism had kind of transferred, translated, kind of changed over time, really good understanding with Jewish thought, um, but they are never considered scripture, couple key things to look at. Jesus nor any of the apostles or any of the writers of the New Testament ever quoted from any book of the Apocrypha, but they absolutely quoted from the Old Testament. And so this, the study of which books are allowed to be considered scripture and not is called uh, canonicity, the canon, the standard or the rule. And between Old Testament and New Testament, there's very similar things that we recognize Right. We recognize the spiritual authority of Scripture, not that any man or council has ever deemed something scriptural. Right? So we have, to, there's, we have to walk into that conversation very well. And so when you look at even just Jesus and, and how did he hold the Old Testament and what high regard compared to some of these other books that existed, he absolutely handled those with a higher level of respect and authority than any of the other ones that were around. And there were plenty, there was a lot. And the same thing with the writers of the New Testament. And so the Apocrypha was um, added to Scripture only for the Roman Catholic Church and some of the Eastern Orthodox. And it wasn't added until 1547 at the Council of Trent. And it was done in response to the Protestant Reformation. So when you go nailing 90-some thesis on the door of the church and said, hey, you need to reform or you need to get right because you're walking in some sin, yeah, that was a battle that was going on. And that's why the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Church, there was a big struggle there. And so they added the books of the Apocrypha. So if you are a Bible thumper, literally, where you want to take the Word of God and smack somebody with it, I highly recommend using a Catholic Bible because you get about 15, 16 more books. You get a little more bang for your buck right there. So if you're like, does your pastor recommend the Catholic Bible? Yeah, if we're throwing it at people. You know, you catch one of those going 70 miles down the highway, like, you're going to see the Lord, right? <laughs> Amen. That's what Jesus would do. And so that is the Apocrypha, right? And so uh, good history, good understanding, but it's not to the level of Scripture because when we see the Word of God here in these 66 books, we understand that there's the Spirit-filled writers that are being superintended by the Holy Spirit writing the words of God in their distinct way. That's why John writes in a very common Greek understanding of his 
of, of Greek. And then Paul, he would write in a very lawyer kind of way. Like some of those things you read and it's just like, I have no idea what he's saying because he wrote at a very high level. So they still had their own distinct uh, personalities, but they wrote the words of the Holy Spirit. Now there's a whole nother grouping of a bunch of letters, maybe a little more than even 70. And we even found a lot of these in the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, that we found in those caves in Qumran, and it's what's called the Pseudepigrapha. And so these are other letters, again, Jewish authors writing in that intertestamental period of time, even all the way up until after the writing of the New Testament. And then you get into Gnostic Gospels. So there's a lot of extra letters pertaining to some degree of Scripture. But another one, and, and why the Pseudepigrapha is key, is that is what Jude is writing, and he quotes from here, is he's quoting from two books in the pseudepigrapha, meaning Jewish authors, and they are writing, but they attribute the authorship to a big, and I hate the word, but famous person of Scripture, right? So they, uh, one of them is called the Assumption. Uh, some people think it's a two-parter, the Assumption and Testimony of Moses. He's quoting there about uh, Michael and the devil fighting over the body of Moses. That comes from that pseudepigraphal book. And then Enoch 1, the book of Enoch. Some people might have heard of that one. Definitely uh, talks about the Nephilim of Genesis 6 and different things like that. And he's quoting from those. Now, the key that we have to understand is Jude is using those examples to bring about understanding of these certain people. And just because he quotes from one part of this book that is not canonical, it is not scripture, it doesn't mean that the whole of that book is inspired, right? So it, it, put it in today's concept. Just because Francis Chan quotes scripture doesn't mean that his level of writing for any of his books should be equal to scripture. And if we are reading other human authors talking about the word, but we're not reading the word itself, that is a tool of Satan. Great people. But where does the start? I don't want to read the Bible. I want to read another human's understanding of Scripture. No, we need to be students of the Word, not students of each other. Now, is there some really smart people, way smarter than me? Absolutely, and I lean on their understanding, but never remove the Spirit of God working in you as you are reading His Word. Because the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the person of God will never conflict with them, right? And so God doesn't need to, by proxy, through some of these great human authors that have given us great understanding, he doesn't need to reach you by proxy through them. You have the Spirit of God living in you and through you. Read the Word. Grow in that. Be a student of the Word. So those are a couple of those books. Just wanted to front load that. If you have any questions, I love the textual criticism, the, the canonicity study of Scripture. Why are these books? Do we have you know, all the right books? Do we have what was originally written? Short answer, yes, we have the Word of God, and there's ample evidence for it, and I would love to discuss that more, but we need to understand what Jude is talking about. And so he starts, and he's again, he's talking about these certain people that do not have a great reputation about themselves, and he starts in, he starts describing them in like manner, these people. What are they? They're relying on their dreams, right? So they're relying on their dreams. They're these dreamers that sit around and they think about what ministry could be like and what God could do, right? And there's nothing wrong with that kind of thought. But the problem is that their hopes and their desires, they oppose the kingdom of God. And to take it a step further, they expect such of these personal aspirations to be granted by God. It's kind of like when I was a youth pastor up in St. Joe, I had to jump on the highway and be on the highway for like five, 10 minutes and then take the highway, you know, get off and there's where our church was at. And some schmuck thought it was a great idea to put a billboard of the Powerball right there. And it would always update every time all of us losers didn't win, you know, and the money just got more and more. And then, because, I mean, I'm going to be honest, like my flesh and coveting would take over. And then I would try to spiritualize, oh, Lord, you know what I would do with all that money? Yeah, fall into sin and depravity is what I would do, right? Like you can say all day long, Lord, if you would, if you would give me this and you know what I would do with that, you would do nothing with it. And how I knew that is because the Lord never let me win the Powerball, right? And you got to play to try to win first. Like that's the key. And I never played. And so, Lord, if you really want me to win this money, you're going to have to put that winning ticket in my mailbox, right? I'm going to have to stumble across that bad boy at any time. 
And so I would have these dreams of what I would do in ministry, and I would have these personal aspirations and think, Lord, why don't you do that in my life? Because it's not about you. It's about what I want to do in your life. And so these certain people would have these big aspirations and dreams, and they would not root themselves, not just in reality, they wouldn't root themselves in the kingdom of God. And they would question the Lord, well, why can't it be more like this? And why can't we change this? Because this seems so, you know, against our culture. And why can't the church be more like it? Thank the Lord we don't have those issues today in the church. No, how about we realign and reinterpret not scripture to fit our desires, but we realign and reinterpret ourselves to fit the word of God. And so you have these dreamers, they defile the flesh. We talked about that last week with sexual immorality. Again, thank the Lord that the church doesn't have any issues with that whatsoever. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. And that's where Jude picks up this uh, little story that was happening in this book, The Assumption of Moses. And he just uses this one little part to say, hey, let's talk about these people. Because understand, they're blaspheming what they don't even know. They're, they're pretty much instinctively ap- operating like a wild animal. Not even that they're trained or they're domesticated. They're just a wild animal just going off of instinct and what's natural for them, right? That's always fun as a parent when you go to the zoo and you have to explain to your kids, what are they doing? Well, you got to give them the birds and the bees and the monkey speech, right? Like, that's what they're doing here. And so they're operating instinctively. They're, 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 they're not carrying out any self-control whatsoever. They're just like wild animals. And so and they're blaspheming what they don't even understand. It's like, I don't even know what that is, but I'm going to blaspheme it. And so Jude writes and he says, we got to talk about this. Because think of the Archangel Moses, or Archangel Moses, Archangel Michael. You know, this is the highest level of a ranking angel, and it's singular, Think of Michael, when he was in this battle contending with the devil, talking about the body of Moses, and and we don't need to go into the geek outs and the hypotheticals of what that means. Just let it rest, it's okay, right? But we want to focus on what Michael didn't do. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment upon the devil. Why? Because he knew his authority and his boundaries as the archangel. That's not my position to do. It is not for me to carry out judgment, even if that is the devil. Because even the devil in his absolute fallen state was still an angel of lights at one point. And even though the devil is operating at the complete antithesis of what God is, Michael knew that's not my role. God will carry out that judgment. And I'm going to trust the Lord in that. And he's not going to pronounce this blasphemous judgment. And so Michael knew, and he submitted himself to the authority in the judgments of God. Now, I love Romans 12, 19, quoting Deuteronomy 32, where it says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I just want to be about the Lord's business, (laughs) right? Some people want to serve on the parking lot team or the cafe team. Some people want to serve in cow kids. Where's the vengeance team of Calvary? Where do we just get to armor up and ammo up and we can walk around and just pour out God's vengeance on sinners in our community, right? Go ahead and fill out the text prompts if you want to join that team. (laughs) But Michael knew his role. He knew his boundaries. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we have to trust the Lord in that. That it is not our role. We are not anointed for that responsibility to carry out the condemnation and the judgment of God. Now, are we called to judge righteously? Absolutely. You don't throw your pearls before swine. But we don't carry out God's judgment on people and or nations. That is not our role. And so Jude writes this because they, these certain people, that's what they're doing. They're putting themselves in the position of judge. And they're depending, they are dictating what's right and what's wrong, and they're carrying out as if they are the authority of God. They are not staying within their, as he was talking here, they, they're not staying within their boundaries. And they're walking into what they are not anointed for. And so understand our role is the church. The world's already condemned. We see that in John 3. And God sent Jesus, his son, not to condemn the world. It's condemned already. 
but to save the world. And so what are we to do as the church? Preach the gospel. And we'll talk about that more. And as he's continuing, he says, Woe to them, these unreasoning animals. They're just operating on their instincts. Woe to them. We don't even have language in the English to help properly understand what a woe means. Definitely not um, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Like, whoa. I know I just dated myself. Everybody like 30 and older got that. Everybody 30 and under is like Googling right now real quick. Bill and Ted, who is, were they one of the apostles? Is that an excellent adventure? Like what part of the Bible is that in? Right? So not that good kind of woe, but like, ooh, woe to them. Like this is not going to look good. Why? Because they walked in the way of Cain. And so Jude now is using three uh, examples from the Old Testament to describe these people all in the topic of rebellion. And so he starts with Cain. We understand Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel, right? It's not a gun problem. It's a heart problem. It's not a rock problem. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem that Cain was having. And so Cain is cursed. And so he's walking in the way of Cain. This is the way of pride, the way of unbelief. We know from Hebrews 11 that they were both to bring sacrifices unto the Lord. Cain brings some vegetables. Abel brings the first fruit of the animals. He brings the best of his flock. Also, you know, when you think of Adam and Eve, when they're kicked out of the garden, they were sewing fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, and we still do the same thing today, right? Still covering ourselves with plants, the touch, the feel of cotton, the fabric of our lives, the fabric to cover our sin and our nakedness. We're still doing the same thing that they did in the garden. But what did God clothe Adam and Eve in? Animal skins. There had to be an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to cover the sin and the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And so when Cain and Abel are called to bring a sacrifice, Cain just brings some vegetables and he walks in a way of unbelief. Where Abel trusts the Lord, he walks in faith and he brings what the Lord required. See, we can't just offer whatever we want to the Lord and say, hey, here's my sacrifice, Jesus, you better take it. No. And that happens a lot. See, we, we have to allow God to define what do we sacrifice unto him. We don't come to the Lord with our vegetables. We go to the Lord and say, what do you require of us? That's what we lay down at the altar. And Psalm 51 tells us that he wants brokenness, a broken spirit and contrite heart. That's what he will not despise. He doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires mercy. And that's what Cain did not understand. He walked in a way of unbelief. He didn't trust the Lord and listen and walk in obedience to that. He walked in what he wanted, what he thought he was willing to sacrifice, what he would lay down before him. And so when he saw the favor of the Lord upon his brother, he killed him. And when we read Hebrews 11, we see that Abel, he walked in faith. All through every dispensation of Scripture, we see that it's always been by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live by faith. There's never been any other avenue that we are called to walk for favor of the Lord than to walk in faith. Don't be like the way of Cain. He's saying, don't walk in your pride to walk in and tell the Lord what he's going to get from you. No, don't walk in unbelief and think, okay, that's what the Lord's requiring, but this is what I want to give. No, walk in faith, walk in trust with him. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.7, walk by faith faith, not by sight. And that's going to be hard, right? It's easier to walk by sight. You see where you're going. You see the obstacles that are coming up. To walk by faith, you don't know what the Lord is going to bring into your life tomorrow. You don't even know if the Lord's going to bring you into tomorrow. Walk by faith. You might be, every one of us has a situation in our life right now that we are walking in a way of unbelief that Jesus is calling us and saying, hey, if you trust me, I want to I lead and guide you through this, but you're walking in the way of Cain. That you, you don't know if, how this is going to work out. You don't know how I can work in this, and you're, you're not even trusting if I'm good. You don't even know it. You, you question even if I see what you're walking through. You're walking in the way of Cain here. And every one of us have it, pastor included, that you have Jesus in his grace and his mercy saying, Believe me, not just on the cross for your salvation. Believe in me to make it through tomorrow. Believe me in this situation. 
Well, you don't understand, Pastor, I've been praying for decades. Okay. Is, is that the standard that we only pray for a little bit and then we give up on it? When is the appropriate time to give up on the Lord? Never. And maybe that's the work that he wants to do in you. You know, like some of us have family members or maybe adult kids that are not walking with the Lord and you've been praying for decades to see their salvation and you're shaking your fist at the Lord saying, are you ever going to turn and change their heart? Are you ever going to grab a hold of them? What if the Lord looks at you and says, I'm just waiting for you to pray in faith? What if the work I want to do is not in your lost, but in you? You know, I think of Jairus. I think that's his name. In the New Testament, his daughter's dying. He looks at Jesus and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And maybe I'm the only dirty, rotten sinner here, but I got areas in my life that I'm walking in the way of unbelief, that I'm not trusting the Lord and his promises in. And Jude, in his grace and his kindness, are calling us. Woe to them. Don't walk like them in the way of Cain. And then he continues on. He says, and don't abandon yourselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. So Balaam, you go back to Numbers 22 to 24. Balaam's this wicked, crazy-looking prophet, right? And then this king, Balak, from Moab. And if you understand where the Moab's uh, the Moabites came from is when Lot was pulled out of Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife turned to salt. We don't know if that was a blessing or a curse. <laughs> scripture doesn't say. We don't want to make Scripture say more or less than what it says. It just said that's what happened, okay? And he's left with his two daughters and they see Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. In their eyes, they're thinking that they're the only people left of humanity, so we have to repopulate. So the oldest sister goes first and lays with her drunk dad. That's where she named her kid Moab. That's where the Moabites come from. And so you have this king of the Moabites, obviously a few years later, who wants to bring a curse upon Israel. He sees the nation of Israel kind of walking around and through his land, so he, he hires Balaam. I want you to bring a curse upon these people. And three times, Balaam tries to curse Israel. But when he speaks from the Lord, even a wicked prophet speaking of the Lord, he can only bring blessing to Israel. And because he still wants to get paid, right? Like, job well done, you got it to get a paycheck. And so he's like, what's another way? Because obviously you're not bringing a good curse. Every time you open your fat mouth, you're just bringing blessing into Israel. Like, hey, if you're going to worth your salt, we, we need to do something here with Israel. You know how he gets Israel to fall? Sexual immorality. Thank the Lord that the church is immune to it today, right? That we don't walk into the world and the ways of the world, the values of this world and sexual immorality. But that was the way that Balaam used to still get his payday. And so when we look at the gain of Balaam, he's using ministry and giftings for financial gain. And what we know later in Joshua 13 is Balaam dies in battle and is killed. And so all of us, we've said it before, we're all in ministry. Now, do we have different positions? Do we have different roles and responsibility and different levels of authority? Absolutely. But as the body of Christ, all of us are in ministry. And so if you are using your ministry for any kind of financial gain, you're using the blessing and the anointing from the Lord in an inappropriate way. You know, every time we hire a pastor, we come up here, we lay hands on them, and we pray this anointing. You know, in the Old Testament, it was always kind of a symbol of oil, was a symbol of the anointing from God. It's just an outward expression of an inward reality. We always want to pray over one of our pastors just to recognize the authority, the anointing that they have from the Lord, these ministry giftings and talents to lead in worshiping the Lord and leading the shepherd or the sheep as shepherds. And what's so wrong, a good thing it doesn't happen today, but in the time that Jude's writing is that people, these pastors are platforming themselves for financial gain, using their ministry to earn, and not just a living, like Paul talks about that in Timothy. There, that's something totally different. This is a misappropriate use, that there's no heart to worship the Lord. There's no heart for the sheep whatsoever. They just see a bunch of little money bags. And I'm going to do ministry to try to gain as much money as possible. And so when you think of that anointing as that oil, there's so many pastors today that drink their own oil. 
and they misuse the anointing from the Lord, and they miss the purpose that God had anointed them in giving those spiritual giftings and talents. Now, again, all of us are in ministry, so not all of us are going to misuse the ministries of God for financial gain, but he just uses that one example of how you can misuse your ministry. All of us in ministry can misuse our giftings and talents. We can sit on them like the unfaithful servant, right, that just gets his one talent from the Lord, he buries it, just sits on it, doesn't want to do anything with it. Like, yeah, I like to do this or that, or God's, you know, has given me this gifting or talent, but all we do is just sit in the pew and we don't want to serve whatsoever inside the church. We don't want to serve outside of the church, right? We just want this dollar menu Christianity where it's cheap, it's easy, and it brings no sustenance or nutritional value to our lives. That's a way that we can misuse the giftings and the talents. And when we read things like Paul saying that I get to pour out my life as a drink offering, which is a symbol of joy, we think it's, oh, that's just radical Christianity. You're one of those Bible thumpers. I see you got the Catholic Bible too. You're really hitting people with it. No, all of us are in ministry. Different roles, different responsibilities, different giftings, talents. It's almost like we're all different members and parts of one body. But so many times the body of Christ is paralyzed halfway and, and the body parts that are supposed to be helping and movement and action and, and the work that God has for us are actually a hindrance because we can't move them and there's atrophy and apathy in it. Don't misuse the giftings that God has given you for ministry. Now, do we have a set ministry in-house that's gonna be for your gifting? No, thank the Lord that ministry doesn't just happen inside these walls. Your ministry might be coaching your kid's t-ball team. Your ministry might be your work and the people that you have influence in. I don't know what that is for you, but all of us, saved by grace, have the opportunity and have a spiritual gifting and a ministry upon us. We all need to seek the Lord and say, what is that? Some of us know and we're sitting on it. Some of us know and we're walking in obedience to it. And some of us have no idea. That's okay. Get serving, get moving, do something. It's so much easier to steer a moving car than to try to steer a parked car. So serve. Be like, eh, it's not my, not my favorite thing to do. Perfect. You'll find out in a couple weeks if you're called to kids ministry, right? <laughs> you won't have to pray about that one. You'll know pretty quick if you are working within your giftings in your ministry. And if you're not, great. Let's find where you are. But it's so much easier to get moving and to, and to find that than to sit and just wait and have that pride of, oh, Lord, you're, you're going to have to tell me and treat me special compared to everybody else. It's not how the Lord operates. And then he goes on to, and those that have perished in Korah's rebellion, even though only Korah is named, there's also a dude named Dathan and Abiram. Because again, destruction and rebellion, Satan doesn't want to just take down one. He wants to take as many as possible. So it wasn't just that Korah rebelled. He was taking people with them. So watch who you hang with. Are they leading you to Christ or are they leading you in rebellion away from Jesus? Your friends matter. Think of the four friends that lowered the paralytic through the roof. Yeah, he was made healed by his faith. He was healed because of his friend's faith. It matters who you hang with. And so you have Korah with his two buddies, and they look at Moses, and they're saying, why do you put yourself elevated over them? We're all holy. We're all in the same boat. Why are you, why are you platforming yourself over the whole nation of Israel? Like, who do you think you are? Like, you need, to, you need to tone it down. You need to step it down a little bit. We should all have that same access to the Lord. And you know what Moses' first response was to this rebellion? Get the heck out of my church. He fell on his face in prayer. The Old Testament tells us that Moses is the most humble of the Old Testament, meek. And even when he was being attacked in rebellion, he hit his knees in prayer to the Lord. But he was also going to let the Lord work. And so they kind of line up opposite of each other. They're lighting some incense, and he says, the Lord will decide. The Lord will show. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to bring a blasphemous judgment against them. That's for the Lord to do, right? And there's times in Scripture where we see the Lord will operate in almost making an example for the rest of the body. We even see it in the early church. 
that if you lie to the Holy Spirit and try to make yourself look better by financially supporting the church and you lie to the Holy Spirit about that, remember Ananias, or Anna, Sapphira and Ananias? Anas? Thank you. <laughs> when you try to wing it off the top of your head, sometimes you miss those pronunciations. They lie to the Holy Spirit and what do they do? Come in one at a time and drop dead because they lie to the Holy Spirit. Thank the Lord that God doesn't operate exactly like that. Or we'd have to turn cow kids into a morgue. <laughs> we like, you got seven more, come pick them up. <laughs> They're lying to the Holy Spirit again. You'd be so scared to walk into the assembly, like, okay, here we go. <laughs> Husband falls flat, be like, sucks to be you, right? <laughs> and so they line up Moses and Korah and the and he says, all right, let the Lord do it. And let the Lord do it in a way that it can't be, in a, like, can't be explained away. And so the earth opens up and swallows Korah, his whole family, his friends with him, everything. Why? Because he spoke against God's authority. Number 1630 says, these men have despised the Lord. So understand, when we speak against the authorities that God has placed over us, you're speaking against the Lord. And you remember the three ordained ministries that God is using to exercise authority over man? The family? Just going to call it. Let me punch the men first. Guys, you are called to be the spiritual leaders of your household, period. Grow up. Understand your role. Lean into it. When you were a boy, you played with boy things. That makes sense. You're a man. Put away the boyish things and be a man. Women, don't speak against the authority that God has placed on them. One of the most unsupportive, unbiblical things that you can do is complain about your husband. The greatest thing my wife has ever done is to not speak ill of me in the presence of others. Do I have issues? Absolutely. I'm the chief of sinners here and I'll put anybody to test in it. I'm the worst one. But my wife, in the grace of God, doesn't talk to you guys about my shortcomings and my failures. She talks to me. She talks to the Lord alone about them. Don't speak against the authorities that God has placed. But men, make sure you're leading in those. Don't give your wife a reason to complain. And then there's the church. We can talk about that later. And then there's the government. Understand what the scriptures are telling us. That when we speak against the authority that God has placed in our government leaders, if we speak ill of them, we speak evil of them, we're speaking against the Lord. We are despising the Lord. And I understand the men that sit in some of these roles do not under, agree with our religion, our faith, our values, that we would want to see in leading our country. There hasn't been a uh, president yet in my short few decades of being on this earth that I agree with 100%. But it is not for us to speak ill of him. And if our political affiliation causes us to sin, then maybe you're in the wrong political affiliation. And I know what I'm saying. Now, do I agree with the president, senators, the House of Representatives? Do I agree with the governor over the state, the country, the, of our... No, I don't agree with them at all whatsoever. But we're called to submit ourselves to them. We're called to pray for them. Because of who they are? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because of who we are. This is how we are to operate as the body of Christ when we live in a broken world with a, a governmental system that probably doesn't align with us. And so we have to keep trusting the Lord in this. Like, don't walk in the way of Cain and unbelief. Don't look and think, oh, don't you know what the government's doing now? Yeah, probably some more brokenness and sin and darkness. Why? Because Christ is my hope, not the government's. It's never going to bring about transformation whatsoever. That is, that's the role of Christ and Christ alone. And so what's my role as a follower of Jesus? He tells me, Titus 3, 1 to 2, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 
Sometimes we're, we're so mad at the government that we're missing the good work that God has for us to step into it. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, even our president, even our representatives, even the Senate, even the governor, even our mayor. Because of who they are? No, no, no. Because of who Christ is in me. That's what we're called to do. Trust God's plan. Don't speak evil of them. And then he goes on, and in two verses, he gives these really kind of weird, uh, poetic descriptions of these certain people, and none of them are good, right? So he says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast, right? Did you know that that's what they called the assemblies on a Sunday morning? That was your love feast, because we love God, and we love one another. We love our enemies, right? It's like, there's over here loving people. It makes it sound like it's Woodstock, and we're a bunch of hippies, you know, like. But that's what he used to do. This was a love feast, right? And they would normally eat afterwards. And everybody's like, oh, I'm down for that. Let's, let's, let's bring that back. Why don't we have a little potluck after this? Well, you know, in the early church, the services actually lasted about three hours. Ah, come on, Pastor. I got about an hour for you on a Sunday. You're like, we can't do that three-hour business. And the really crazy part is at the beginning of the service is when they allowed the unbelievers in. And then at some point in the service, they would stop and say, okay, if you, are, if you are not a follower of Jesus, it is time for you to leave and you be dismissed now. Can you imagine that? You're like, well, this is awkward. And you got to walk out, right? So that's these love feasts that he's talking about. He goes, but they're hidden reefs. And, and obviously us in the lake area, we can understand that. Imagine you got your nice boat out here on the water. It's a beautiful sunny day and you're just zipping through the lake because there's no speed limit. And then you hit a rock, not like a rock, like a boulder that's hiding just in shallow water. You can't see it, and, but you'll feel it, you'll hear it, and it'll send you zinging. It's going to bring absolute destruction to your life. He goes, yeah, that's what these certain people are. They're hidden reefs. They're these hidden boulders that just bring destruction to boats as they're trying to sail. And in these love feasts, they feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves, and so they're selfish. You know, they're the first in line at the buffet, and they're taking everything that they can. They're waterless clouds that are being swept along by the winds. And, you know, think in this culture, when you had crops and you would see clouds, you think, yes, there's going to be some rain. It's going to help the crops to grow and to be fruitful. And the clouds roll in and bring nothing. It was absolutely useless. So these certain people, they're destructive, they're selfish, they're useful, useless, and they're unfruitful. He goes, we, we see them as fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They're not just dead because they don't have fruit. They're dead because they don't have good roots into the bedrock doctrines of the church. So they're unfruitful. They're wild waves that just foam up their own shame. So they're very prideful and arrogant, even in their sin. And then the last one, I think, is the hardest one. They're wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And so sailors, obviously, in this day, they would use the stars and they would use constellations to be able to navigate sailing. Still can do that to this day. Because those are fixed in the sky and they do not change whatsoever. But these certain people, they're wandering stars. They have this the theological stance, and then it changes to this one and to this one. It's probably matching the culture, and every time the culture changes, they change. Think the Lord again. That never happens in the church. You can hear some pastors at one point in their life, they're preaching this, and they preach that, and they preach this, and they preach that, and they're just wandering stars. Jude's telling us, don't be that way. Be firm on the foundation and the bedrock of what Christ is. Be firm in that foundation. Don't be a wandering star. Live your life in a way that other people could look at you and navigate their way and find Christ. Like, don't be lost. Don't be shifting and moving because you're afraid that the world's going to call you whatever, intolerant, offending, narrow-minded. Stand firm on Christ. Don't be wavering. And look at your life and say, if, if people looked at me, am I a wandering star or am I that steady thing that's unmovable that people could operate and find the way of Christ off of? 
That's what we're called to be. Scripture even talks about us as pastors. You know, one of the things that we're to do is lead by example. That's a, that's a crazy responsibility that I think of. That if people would look at my life, not what I do on a Sunday morning for a couple hours, but if you rolled into Walmart at a Thursday at 2, you're like, oh, that's my pastor over there. Oh, the one that's like losing his ever-loving mind because they don't have pickles. That one, yep, that's my guy right there. Brings a good word every Sunday as he's just like raining down fire from hell on the little checkout boy because he has no idea. Like, are we living our lives consistent? Are we living our lives? We think of Paul. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Would people look at us and say, that's a Jesus follower? Regardless if they're going to follow or not, are they going to look at us and say, that's an unmovable, unshakable follower of Christ who loves his word, loves the Lord, and you can't shake him? No matter how much persecution you throw at them, no matter how much pleasure you throw at them, no matter how much trial and tribulation, you can't move that guy. Are we that unmovable foundation in our homes, in the church, in the community, or are we wandering stars, just shifting from one thing to the next? And whatever the culture says, that's what we're going to go off of. And then he continues, skip to verse 16. He says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. It's all revolving around their words. Literally the fire of hell coming out of them from their tongue, James 3 would tell us. See, when we see people like that, we think, how do they get away with it? Why does God allow that evil to happen so much in the world? Like, why... And that's why we want to have that vengeance. We want to bring condemnation and judgment of the Lord because there's evil people in our world that are getting away with it. And if we don't do something about it, who will? Read your Bible. No one got away with their rebellion. No one's going to escape judgment. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. Every person that is exercising any position of authority in our world will stand before the Lord and give an account for it. Every president, every senator, every house of representative, every governor, every position of authority. Why? Because all of authority is from God. Think of the conversation Pilate and Jesus had. Talking about, are you really the king of the Jews? You really have authority over me? And Jesus says, the authority that you have is only given to you from above. That's the only source of authority. And John 5 tells us that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. No one's going to get away with it. And so bringing judgment, that's the Lord's work, not ours. We have to understand like Michael, we need to know our place. We're not anointed to do that. We're not called to hand out condemnation and judgment. We're called to bring the gospel. Not wrath, not judgment. We're called to bring the good news of Jesus. And so here's a question for you. Is your desire for justice, righteousness, holiness, truth, is it greater than the Lord's? Do you really think that you're looking at the world with the absolute depravity and, and brokenness that we see and just the, this, the rising level of evil happening and we're looking at the Lord like, I'm more passionate about this than you are, Lord. Like, why don't you do something? Do you really think that your call for justice is greater than the Lord's? Absolutely not. But when we act like it is, it shows how little we desire grace and mercy and repentance forgiveness, salvation. We're like the sons of thunder, James and John, where we just want to rain down fire on the world that everybody that is interrupting our perfect little Christian bubble. We're like Jonah that want to sit up on a hill and just watch Nineveh just be destroyed. And we're mad at God when he shows grace and mercy. See, we say we want revival, but in reality, we want retribution that we're taking this attack on ourselves, we have to understand, they're not blaspheming us, they're not despising us, it's the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. Our role as the body of Christ is to bring hope and grace and peace. God desires repentance, he desires salvation, but he will hand out justice, righteousness, and holiness. He will hand it out, not us. And so don't fall into the trap. Don't walk in that way of unbelief. Trust the Lord. So instead of walking in that way of unbelief, walk faithfully with Jesus. 
instead of going after gain and misusing our ministries. No, walk in, in a fruitful life. And so study the, the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. Are we loving? If there's a lack of love in our life, that's probably a gap where Jesus wants to do a work in our heart. If we're missing joy in our life, that's probably a work that God wants to do in our life. Peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like if we're lacking any of those, that's probably a work that God wants to do in us. He wants to see us faithful, fruitful, and fulfilling the call that he has upon us. He is returning, and he will absolutely handle every injustice that we see. But that's not our fight to win. Our fight is to be the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus. That's what we as the body of Christ are called to be. So don't be like these certain people and don't step outside of our bounds. Understand what he's called us to be and trust him and faithfully walk in that. That we, we have this treasure given to us in these jars of clay. I mean, how insane is it that all of us, broken and lost at one point in our lives, get to go and bring hope and peace to those that we're living, that are living how we used to. We're that one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, and we get to introduce them to the baker. What an amazing ministry that we have. Stay in the role that God has called us for. Pray with me. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. And Lord, just forgive us of our unbelief. Forgive us when we step outside of what you have called from us. And we know that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And so we just rest on that promise this morning. And I pray that you would find us faithfully trusting you and your plan. And it is difficult, Lord, to see the evil that feels like it is piling up in the world around us. And it is hard not to shake our fist at you and wonder how long is this going to continue before you do something. Lord, forgive us of that, and I pray that we would trust your plan. Because we know that as you are patiently enduring this evil, people are coming to a saving relationship with you. And so I pray that we would never lose sight of the gospel regardless of the evil that is around us that we would continue as the body of Christ to be a voice of hope, of grace, of mercy, and truth. Give us that kind of faith, Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said?